Good afternoon. This is uh, the, the 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 next recording in this series of videos um, about the what it means to be a Lutheran, what we believe as Lutherans. We're going, and I'm as we're doing this. I'm walking through the the catech the Luther's small catechism, and hopefully this is a guide for those who are exploring Lutheranism, uh, those who are going through confirmation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Today we are looking at the third article of the Apostles' Creed. And so here I have Luther's small large and small catechism as produced by Concordia Publishing House. And so I'm going to read from the third article. And so we're going to just jump right into this. This is about sanctification. So I believe in the Holy Spirit. So I talked about this in the previous bit video that the Holy Spirit is indeed a person. Scripture speaks of him this way. Jesus talks about him as, so especially the Gospel of John talks about the Holy Spirit as a helper. Um, it's actually using the same language, the same word that is used to describe Eve um, in the book of Genesis. And unless we're being really sexist, uh, women are people. Believe it or not, women are people. So um, we could say the Holy Spirit is a person too. Um not just an aspect of main, of God, uh, which is common belief, is that he, it's a, um, an outpouring of God as the Holy Spirit is, um, is a common belief. And so but he's described as a person in scriptures and described as being distinct from the other um, persons of the Trinity. Because, uh, you know, Jesus says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. Uh why would he have to go somewhere to do that um, unless the Holy Spirit was some another person, right? And there's even the fact that, again, as I mentioned a few videos ago, is that Jesus mentions the one unforgivable spirit being one unforgivable sin, which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about that here. And I'm explaining to the, this is actually um, a very important subject. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, to say that you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit is a suggestion that he's a person, and not only is he a person, he is God. Um, you can't blasphemy is a sin that is only committed against God. And so you can't bla I can't be blasphemed, you can't be blasphemed, only God can be blasphemed. And the fact is you could you can't commit sin against a, an aspect of a person, you commit sin against a person. So the blaspheme the Holy Spirit means to blaspheme God. It doesn't make sense if he's an aspect. It doesn't make sense that blasphemy against the Son is forgivable, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit isn't. That doesn't make sense unless they're distinct persons, right? So the Holy Spirit is a distinct person. He is God. So I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church. Now, the word, okay, first Christian and actually, in modern, Christian is the more um, recent word that's used there. The more historic term people used is Catholic. And some people will make distinctions, lower C Catholic, to let you know we're not talking Roman Catholic. Um, but the Catholic Church or Christian Church, Catholic means universal. Christian means small Christ. So, um, and I'll honestly probably... Catholic is probably the better word in this point, given what it's trying to be confessed. Uh, but Christian works, all right? So 
we could we believe in the so we believe in the holy Christian Church, the Holy Catholic Church, the Universal Church. So this is where there's kind of confusion because the word church can be used in so many different ways in our English language. So we can say I'm going to church on Sunday. That just means we're going to attend worship. And as I mentioned when I got to the third, we were talking about the third commandment. Um, worship, going to church. We say we're going to church. The better phrase would be to say, I'm going to attend the divine service, or I'm attending worship. I suppose that works a little decently. Um, but attending church, it's kind of, I mean, yes, that's the way we speak, but it's kind of confusing. Um, or we might be speaking to the building. The building that I'm in right now is called a church. Sometimes it's used that. Um, or you have the Lutheran church, the Presbyterian church, the um, the Baptist Church, Catholic Church, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and so again, there's more confusion there. So what there is is there's what we call there's a distinction that actually I know there's some Lutherans that don't like this distinction, and uh, but I do, and I know it comes from the Presbyterians or the Calvinists, I should say, um, and I'm okay with it. It's the um, distinction between the ver invisible church and the visible church. The invisible church is the church that is scattered throughout the world. This is literally anybody and everybody that's a Christian. It's the church is scattered throughout time and space. Um, and this is, you know, anybody that just, anybody that has the Holy Spirit and therefore as a consequence confesses Christ, confesses what we are talking about here in the creed and believes in the triune God. That is to be a member of the universal church, the Holy Catholic Church, right? That's invisible, universal church. But then there is also the visible church. And this is what you see in your everyday Sunday, your weekly services. These are the people that gather for worship Sunday morning. Not everybody in that church is a member. Not everybody that's a member of this. I'm, so I'm a pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Ida Grove, Iowa. I wish it weren't so, but reality is not everybody that's a member of this congregation is a member of the universal church because they may be a member of this church, but secretly, inwardly, they do not have faith. They do not trust in God. They have, they're living with a dead faith. And so they may be part of the visible church, but they're not a part of the invisible church. Now, so we're talking about this. So the universal church doesn't matter. So if we're all part of the universal church, does it? Why does it matter which church body we go to? Why does it matter which church denomination we go to? And this is where we're going to go into the scriptures. The scriptures actually tell us um, that doctrinal differences are important. The reason we, the core reason why we have a Lutheran church, a Catholic church, a Baptist church, um, Pentecostal, whatever is because at the core Methodists, we we believe differently. We have we have important doctrinal differences that separate us. Um, you know, right here I have my communion kit. The Lord's Supper is a major source of difference. We're going to talk about that when we get to the Lord's Supper. Um, and this art and really big differences are surrounding this creed, this part of the this article, the creed, not differences regarding um, the Holy Spirit. We we all believe that the Holy Spirit. We're ultimately, like I said, we're all. There are definitely Christians in all church bodies, 
And just being a Baptist does not mean they're not saved. Baptists are saved because they ultimately confess to the same God. But this does not mean that the differences in doctrine are unimportant. So this is what Paul writes in 1 Timothy. I think, I mean, there's probably other verses I could go to, but I think this is probably a good go-to verse in regards to this. It says, this is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, the doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, Paul deals quite a bit in his letters to Timothy and Titus with the importance of proper doctrine, proper teaching. And by the way, pretty much the entire New Testament was written in reaction to false teachings that are going around in the church. Some te false teachings were more significant than others. But either way, they've all been there. And here's, here's another verse that kind of addresses this to some degree. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, But in the following instruction, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So understand here what Paul's going to deal with. He's dealing with bad, a very bad division in and of itself is bad. Uh, but he's also here he's about to address some really problematic divisions. Uh, but he, at the but notice there, he does say that division in a sinful fallen world, to some degree, factions, division is necessary. And that is for the sake of truth. Uh, Paul would say in Romans chapter 16. Here, Romans 16, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. So again, some Scriptures are very firm that you need to keep a close watch on your teaching, keep a close watch on your doctrine. So this is why these different denominations exist. And so we as Lutherans believe, so you go the church that you should be a member of is the church that teaches what you believe is most in line with Scripture. All right, If you believe that what we teach as Lutherans is not in line with Scripture, no, Scripture not in line with your opinions, not in line with your, your feelings. Scripture. Scripture is the determiner of truth, not my opinions, not my feelings, not my emotions, not my traditions, not because that's what I've always been told. No, Scripture and Scripture alone is the determiner of truth and the determiner of doctrine. So if what the Lutherans teach is not what you, what you see to be taught in Scripture, you should not be a part of a Lutheran church. If you say that, if you think that way about um, another denomination, then you should not be a part of them either. All right. So, doctrinal differences are important. So, this is why we have these different church bodies. But ultimately, even in the midst of these differences, for the most part, um, there are doctrinal differences that I do believe that will put someone outside of Christianity. Uh, for example, there are those who deny that Jesus physically rose from the dead. 
and they call themselves Christians. I would not. I would say that they are not Christian. That's denying a fundamental doctrine of the Christian Church. One that to be denied is to deny Christianity itself. Um, so there are teachings such as there are some doctrinal differences like that that, like I said, put you outside of Christianity. But a majority of these differences they're important, and I would I believe that these different these anything that is a false doctrine or false teaching can um, cause problems to the faith. You can think of the of doctrine as a body, and it's, Think of it as a body of doctrine, not as a chain, but a body. And there are some doctrines that if they are jeopardized or broken, when tested by the world, will cripple one's faith. Um, a prime example of this is the modern-day uh, health and wealth prosperity gospel, the whole notion that if you pray hard enough, you have the right faith, you do the right things. God will give you an Alexis, and all you'll be healthy, wealthy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what happens when you do all those things and you work hard and hard and hard, and your life is still in the gutter? You're going to blame God, and you're and you're going to reject and say, "You're a bunch of baloney. I've done all these things, and nothing's going my way," and we'll walk away. So that's a prime. I mean, that's and by the way pastors that preach that type of message, they fill up church to the thousands. It's appealing because people want to be rich. People want to be healthy. And they want to find a way to it. But it is when followed to its conclusion, it will lead to unbelief. So, okay, so we confess to the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. So the word saint means to be one who is set apart, or if you want to do the um, Pat, missionary Gary from Mission Central's version, it's people who are not normal. Um, that is to be a saint. Uh, you are a saint the minute you come and come to faith. You are a saint, right? Um, and the saints involve those who are on this side of the world, um, who are living. And who have passed on. This is refers to the this is the church militant and the church triumphant. And we confess that when you and one of the really cool things that happens, this is revolving around the Lord's Supper, is that you celebrate at the Lord's Supper this communion of saints. And so I'm gonna show you where this idea comes from. It comes from Hebrews chapter 13, I believe. Not Revelation. How do I get a Revelation? Chapter 12. Yes, yeah, chapter 12. Sorry. Hebrews chapter 12. It says, For you have come to what may not, may be touched, a blazing fire in darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood has been understood to refer to the Lord's Supper. That is, at the Lord's Supper, you're united to the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable angels in festal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So we're talking like Peter, Paul, James, you know, the people, the, the great heroes of the faith. And to God, um, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is literally anybody that's ever died in the faith. So this is a confession. This is what we even say this in our creeds. Therefore, the in our liturgy, therefore, with angels and archangels, with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying. So we are confessing that when we come to the Lord's table, we are united, we who are the church militant. We are united to the church triumphant. We who struggle through this world still as a Christian, we are united to the to Jesus, through the blood of the body and blood of Christ, through the Lord's Supper. In Christ, and he is united to the church triumphant, to anybody that has ever died in the faith, whoever that may be on your heart and your mind. And this is the celebration. That is the communion of saints. <clears throat> I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. And the life everlasting. And note, it says the resurrection of the body. So how many times we say that our goal is to get to heaven? How many times you hear Christians say this? And heaven is not your final destination. Heaven is the stopping point. It's the place in between here in the bodily resurrection. Because the day is going to come that God is going to make this earth new. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, as you read right in the book of Revelation. So listen to, this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is often read. This is often read during the um, at funerals. So I'm going to go backwards here a little bit. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind of the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another of the glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So when we die, your body is sown into the ground like a seed. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those of who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the son of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body will put on the imperishable, and this mortal body would put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And previously it talks about Jesus' resurrection being the first fruits of our resurrection. Jesus physically rose from the dead and therefore to never die again. And so shall be for us. We who believe in him, who have been who have been claimed as his own, shall be risen on the last day to never die again. This body will rise in glory. It is a weak, frail, broken, deeply flawed body, but it will raise imperishable, mighty in glory. This is also what... Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4. Sorry, not Galatians. My bad, my bad. Philippians chapter 4. Okay, sorry. So here we go. Philippians chapter 3. It says, But join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Okay, so. People will use this to do the heaven is my home thing. And there's a hymn that's called that. Heaven is, I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. Uh, as long as you understand heaven as a kingdom, as kind of like a governance, not as a location, that's pro that's biblically correct. But if you talk about as a location that this earth, you're a stranger to earth and the physical earth, and then the place of heaven is your home, and that's where you're going to be for all time. That's not accurate. And it's based off of this verse, but our citizenship is in heaven. 
This is where people get this idea. But you miss the rest of it says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So there you go. Heaven is the place from which we await for the resurrection of this body as we confess in the creed. So we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Life everlasting means it will never come to an end. Eternity. What does this mean? I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. All right, so there is a doctrine, there is a, a phrase that the church has come up with. It's called the crux theologorum, the cross of the theologian. And it refers to a particular doctrine, a particular question. Why are some people saved and not others? And it's called the cross of the theologian for two reasons. One is because it is a burden. Pretty much every major difference between church bodies boil down to this question, why are some people saved and not others? It's also called the crux theologorum because your answer to the question will influence literally every other doctrine. Uh, there's a reason why this, you can't get through the third article of the creed. You can't get to baptism or the Lord's Supper or confession and absolution without talking about the third article of the creed. You can't talk about good works. And this little phrase, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. That is our confession as Lutherans, that we are Christian, not by our works, not by our decision, not by anything we've done, but merely, completely by the work of Christ. So the, two, the first passage is, I'm going to, the primary book to go to here is the book of Ephesians. And it's very interesting that this is going to be the gospel lesson for this, or the epistle lesson for this coming Sunday. So I'm going to read first the well-known, more well-known passage, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. So first let's get off that we are saved by grace through faith, not of your own doing. And I read yesterday, in the previous video about Jesus, when I read from Romans, it echoed the same sentimentality that you are saved by faith, which is basically shorthand for grace through faith, um, not of work. So faith, by the way, is a byproduct of grace. Faith is a consequence of grace. Faith is not yours. You don't faith is given to you by the Holy Spirit. Remember what I read in Romans that no one seeks for God, no one does good, no one is righteous, you know that whole thing. Um 
you can't believe on your own. If God left it up to your own will to um, to come to him, to believe him, that you have to accept him into your heart, that you have to choose to believe in him. You know, you hear this. Um, I was just watching a Christian movie that came out uh, last this past year, 2019. And in the movie, the there's this the gospel message came and kept on telling the person who was no longer was not a Christian, kept on saying, if you do this, if you accept Jesus, if you welcome him into your heart, if you make him a part of your life, et cetera, et cetera. If, 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 if that's all law. It's telling you that you have to do something to be saved. But notice it says, not of my own doing. Jesus himself said um, the night before he was betrayed, he said, I, you, did, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Uh, this is what John chapter 1 says in regards to this. He says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's not of your will, it's of God's will that you are born of Christ, that you have salvation. So going back to Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 1, this is the very, this is the passage that divides so many. So it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So, and in him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. So, Jesus, you were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Salvation is 100% of the work of God. The fancy word we have here is divine monergism. So God alone is the credit for your salvation. You And you say, well, I have to believe, right? But faith even is a work of God. This is what Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So without the Holy Spirit, you cannot say Jesus is Lord. So it is purely by the work of God, by grace, through faith, by the choosing work of God that you have faith, you have salvation. You have no credit. 
So you're predestined for salvation. God chose you before anything even existed but himself. He chose you for salvation. So the Calvinist is going to answer this. And so he's going to look at this. And he's going to say, see, okay, so God chooses some for salvation, right? But he also, so that must mean that the reason why some people go to hell is that they he chose them for hell, or he neglected to choose them. But here's where that there's here's the wrench in that idea. First Timothy chapter two. It says, There is one God in one me there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, who is the testimony given at the prop. Proper time. Oh, sorry. I went, got to go backwards again. Verse 3. Sorry. Chapter 2, verse 3 of 1 Timothy. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So God our Savior desires all people to come to the knowledge, to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So if God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, why would he choose people for hell? That doesn't make sense. He wouldn't choose people for hell if he wants them to be saved. And he wouldn't neglect to do it because he's God. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. He, he would be able to save people. He, he, it's not like he can't get around to it. So scripture shows that God chooses us for salvation, but here he's saying that he desires all people to be saved. So if he desires all people to be saved, then he must not be choosing people. So obviously people are making their own choice. So this is, for example, this is what it says in the book of Acts. This is coming from the words of Stephen. Stephen says... You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. So people resist the Holy Spirit. And this is actually going back to the thing of the unforgivable sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is ultimately to reject the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you can't have faith. You can't have forgiveness. You can't have life. So ultimately, the reason why someone is condemned is of their own action, their own willful rebellion against God. So whose fault is it that someone is saved? Is condemned is 100% God, the man's fault. It's that person's fault. So on the flip side, the Arminians, the little Calvinist, says that God chooses people for salvation. He chooses people for hell. The Arminian says, well, if God, if we are the one that makes the choice for our condemnation, then it must be that God, that we are the one that makes our choice for salvation. But the problem is scripture doesn't talk that way. Scripture talks, the way scripture lays it out is that God chooses you for salvation. The way scripture talks, you Man is the one that makes the choice for condemnation. So salvation, 100% God alone. Condemnation, 100% man alone.
And it is a seemingly a paradox. It's something we can't quite grasp as humans. But it is ultimately the, this issue that divides our church bodies. But you have to understand, as Paul wrote in Ephesians, as he says, oops, here in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In other words, you are born dead in your sins. As it says in um, Psalm 50, Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. So from conception, you are sinful. You were born dead. And so you're like Lazarus. You have no ability to accept your resurrection. You're being raised to a new life. This is only purely done by the work and power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we are confessing. We say, we believe that we cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightens me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. And by the way, so there's another division between us and other church bodies. Sanctification. So what about good works? What is the role of good works in life? And for the Methodists, they talk very heavily about perfection. You slowly become a more perfect person. Um, Lutherans, again, wouldn't teach this because we do believe that as a Christian, you're going to do good works. But are you going to become measurably more perfect? We wouldn't stand on that. And, the, and there is actually even a danger in that teaching because what happens is it turns into a backdoor works theology you begin to look at yourself and say, am I good enough? I mean, look at the things I do. Am I really good enough to be truly considered a Christian? And so it is something that creates doubt. Um, and this is even the truth of all these false te these teachings I'm talking about. Double predestination. So the idea that some that you're um, either chosen for salvation or chosen for hell, that there's no comfort in your salvation. If you believe in double predestination, if double predestination is true, you have absolutely no certainty on your salvation. You have nothing you can look to for your hope and your comfort. <clears throat> you can't say, and the reason is, is because you say, well, because usually a lot of times the Calvinists will either, either there's the chosen frozen problem where they choose not to do any good works. They try to avoid good works almost. So that way it doesn't look like they're doing, they're doing good in order to be saved. There's the other version where people do good works to prove their salvation. Well, what happens sometimes is you have somebody who they did all the good things, and by all perspective, they appear that they were on the straight and narrow to salvation. There's no doubt that they were a Christian. Well, late in life, after they've, you know, they've been an elder, they've taught Sunday school, they've done all these things, and all of a sudden, boom, they're an atheist. Well, based upon double predestination, that person was never saved in the first place. And you looking on can't help but wonder, how do I know that I'm not any different? Those who believe that you're saved by works, that you got to do, you're not saved by, they think that you're saved by a human effort. Again, you can say, have I done enough? How much does God demand? Because I know I've sinned. 
How much is enough? Um, decision theology. The idea that, you know, I have decided to follow Jesus. You know, that type of idea. The decision to choose to accept Jesus into your heart. You know, you could find yourself having to prove that your decision was genuine. Did you really mean it? So your faith always ends up looking, it always requires you to look inward. Look at yourself to figure out if you're saved. But we say that God has by, called me by the gospel and lighted me with his gifts. So that's where we look as Lutherans. We look to our baptism. We look to the word and read, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel in a nutshell. John 3.16. We read that and say, Am I in the world? Yeah. Is that true that God so loved the world? Am I in it? Then you're saved. You know, we look at God's word. We look at his word. We look at his sacrament. That is the same. It doesn't change. It doesn't change based on your opinions. All right? We don't look at our works. We don't look at our thoughts or feelings. We look at his word. We look at his means of grace as our source of comfort. In the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. On the last day, he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and to all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. And yes, you notice right there at the very end, all believers in Christ. Not anyone else. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or these words that I got in my email today. Let me pull it up here. This is this is just in I just got this verse. This is Acts 4:12. Says and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no there is no other name under heaven given among men by whom by which we must be saved. And that's referring to the name of Jesus. Salvation is in Christ alone. There is no salvation as Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, atheism, whatever. Salvation is in Christ alone. Then only Christ, those who are in Christ alone will rise on the last day. So that's there's some other stuff in there, but that's going to come up uh, when we start to deal with the sacraments. Uh, so this is so I pray this is continuing to be a blessing to you. Uh, the next video I'm going to come back. I'm going to talk about that life of sanctification, what it means to live as a Christian, and we're going to begin looking at that through the work. The words of the Lord's Prayer. So God's blessings to you. In Jesus' name, amen.